And so quiet our hearts, I pray, and clear our minds. And may our act of listening today be followed with acts of obedience. And may it all be summarized in acts of worship. Father, we do want to be sincere, careful, and quiet worshipers. We don't want to be so caught up in the things around us that we forget to have meaningful time of reflection and worship. Lay a groundwork for us. Use your word to clear our minds and to strengthen our hearts that we would have clarity in a confusing world. In Jesus' name, we ask these things as we study the word together. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm looking for a certain kind of person today. Um, That person is a seeker. Our Christmas story has a number of people in it who are seeking. You'll recognize that as you think through the story. Uh, The seeker that I'm looking for is not a negative person. I'm looking for someone who's been seeking truth, seeking a growing relationship with Christ. It could very well be that you grew up in a Christian home. It could be very true about you that that you know many of the stories of Christmas. But inside your heart and in some of your innermost meditations and thoughts, you just have questions. And you are kind of seeking a stronger faith. You want to believe. That's the kind of seeker I'm looking for. Somebody whose parents have maybe taught you uh, the truth. They've taught you the truths of God's word. But you, you just don't have your granddaddy's faith. And when you think about your granddaddy, you kind of wish you did. But you're not maybe sure. Well, there's a lot of voices coming into your ears. There's a lot of messages being flashed in front of your face. And inside your heart, you sometimes shake a little bit and you just wish you could clarify the meaning of Christmas, who Christ is, and grow in your faith. That's who I'm looking for today. We've talked to the skeptic. Um, Our first message in the Christmas series was Christmas is for skeptics, and we were kind of looking for the hard-nosed, nasty atheist in that message, and we were trying to show them how the Christmas story, if it's true, explodes all of their self-made myths. Last week, we talked about the very heart of the message of Christmas. Christmas is for sinners. Uh, Christmas is for lost people who need to be found. People is for people, Christmas is for people who've been wasting their lives in the mire of sin and, and, and a Savior comes and rescues them. And I trust you benefited from that. Today I'm looking for that seeker. I'm looking for someone who wants to believe, wants to grow in your faith. I think that we can find help in the characters of Christmas. It's why we took time to read the entire story, because we'll not have time to look at all of the verses. But I want very quickly in your mind to catch up to speed with some of the very key characters of the Christmas story. You know them well. Um, And I want to just remind you as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, that in Matthew we have... Uh, key character number one in the Christmas story, and that's Joseph. And Matthew talks about what Joseph understood was happening. And I want to, I want you to recognize that at the beginning of the story, especially Joseph, uh, we maybe can relate to him. He's confused. And he's a little bit uncertain what's happening. And I want you to see that um, from his testimony, um, honest seekers 
can benefit. Um, in Matthew, and just think about it this way, in Matthew we're going to have two sets of key characters. Joseph, and then right away we're going to move into chapter 2 with the story of the wise men. All right, that's the second set of characters that we want to learn from today. Then we're going to flip over to Luke, and we're going to look at that precious Mary and uh, how vitally important she was to the story, of course. And we're going to learn a lesson from Mary, and then we're going to look at the key group of characters that follows Mary, and that's the shepherd. So Matthew talks about Joseph and the wise men, and Luke talks about Mary and the shepherds. Let's begin with, let's begin in Matthew chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 18, what we just heard in our scripture reading and let's re let's just kind of revisit this story and let's capture Joseph's confusion. Joseph now I want you to understand Joseph in his confused state it does he doesn't stay confused very long but Joseph in his confusion is going to help us with questions about the will of God. All true seekers and remember that's who I'm really wanting to speak to today. I'm looking for honest seekers. People who are wanting to get closer to God. People who want to see Jesus more clearly. All honest seekers will deal with the question of knowing God's will. Lord, what is your will for my life? If you could just make that more clear to me, I I would feel closer to you. So I'm looking for people who are seeking clarity on the will of God. Let's look at Joseph as a model. We know and are familiar with this word that... um, Joseph and Mary had been betrothed and they were engaged in this uh, legal arrangement. They had not had the wedding ceremony or their wedding feast or their honeymoon, so to speak. Uh, They had not moved into their new home together. No doubt Joseph had been building a home or arranging for a home. It would have been customary for him to make arrangements with Mary's father. This was a legal arrangement. That's why the word divorce comes up in some of your translations of the Bible, um, that that legal engagement or betrothal period was so serious and so official that you couldn't just walk away from it even though the marriage had not been consummated and so you would have to go through legal proceedings to get that uh, um, unarranged okay and so I want you to recognize that as Joseph it says before they came together she was found to be child with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We learn a lot about Joseph there, don't we? We've reflected upon this in the past, that he was a just man. He was a man of good character. Joseph, young ladies, young unmarried ladies, by the way, Joseph is worth considering and meditating upon and seeking some of those qualities in a husband as you pray for a husband. It's very appropriate for a young person to pray for God's will for a spouse, isn't it? And young ladies, you use Joseph in his just character, how he put the interests of Mary ahead of his own interests, and that he wanted to do this carefully so that she would not be publicly shamed. Because you can only imagine what was going on in Joseph's mind. Think about it. Clearly, his life had an order to it. He had arranged this marriage, everything was going along fine, and all of a sudden, in a matter of a few minutes, in one conversation with Mary, his life goes from order to disorder. He was a man who was in control. Men love to be in control. He had a plan, his life was in order, he was in control, and he moves from control to chaos. He moves from having a plan to having no plan all of a sudden. He liked his life. 
He thought he had a pretty good thing going. If you read between the lines, you have to believe that Joseph, this was more than just an arranged marriage in an Eastern culture, but this was a man who had affection for Mary. He cared about her. No doubt he had watched her. He was probably a good bit older than she, maybe 10 years older. And he cared about her and he was ready to start a family. He was ready to set up a home. It was time. He'd had enough of the single life and he wanted to come home to a warm kitchen with baking bread and some baby squacking and just be the man and have a family that God wanted him to be. There's something very right about God's plan, isn't there? Very right about it. He liked that. And now all of a sudden he doesn't like his life. So not only from order to disorder, from from control to chaos, it's from like to dislike. I don't like what's happening to me. And you, you have to believe as you look at the story that this is churning in him as he falls off to sleep. Notice what it says. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, that's a loaded statement, isn't it? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So I take it that he fell asleep saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. Now you need to understand, as we begin in the first chapter of Matthew, that if you turn left in your Bible, there are some blank pages. Have you ever noticed that? Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you know what you're looking at in those blank pages? 400 silent years. You know, sometimes when we read our Bible, we think that God was always speaking to these people. You know, he spoke to he spoke to Noah and he spoke to Abraham and he spoke to Moses and he spoke to Eli, the prophet, and he spoke through his prophets. You have to recognize that there are huge gaps of time in between with no record of God speaking. And we come off of 400 years after the prophet spoke in Israel and God was no longer giving new truth. It was established, the prophets had written, the prophets had spoken, and for 400 years, no word from God. But you know what every Israelite was looking for? They were looking for Messiah to come. They studied the scriptures. They knew about the fact that God would come and rescue them. We don't know all that happened. Have you ever had a dream where you dreamed something and it was so clear in your dream that when you were awakened, you laid there in bed and you had to stop and define reality? And you had to figure out, okay, that was a dream. I take it that Joseph stirred awake and he had to process what he had just seen and heard in the form of a dream. In Scripture, it was not uncommon for God to speak to people in dreams. In this case, God had a voice. And it wasn't the very voice of God, it was the voice of an angel. We don't have a name given for this angel. In the Bible, there's a number of places where angels' names are recorded. In fact, in the Christmas story, in Luke chapter 1, it begins with the story of John the Baptist and a guy, a priest named Zechariah, whose wife Elizabeth, in her old age and in her barrenness, had a child. And that was John the Baptist. And if you remember that Zechariah, when he was in the inner part of the 
temple and he was chosen to serve in the Holy of Holies and represent the people with special sacrifices for the annual sins of the people that while he was in there, an angel named Gabriel came and spoke to him. Gabriel is a messenger of the Lord. It is possible that this was Gabriel. The Bible didn't give us the name. So guess what? Don't worry your head about it. It doesn't really matter. You do have to kind of be careful with that a little bit in the Christmas story. God gives us exactly, concisely, and to the point what he wants us to know about the incarnation of Christ. And sometimes when you get on these rabbit trails about different details and how they must have worked and what happened, you're actually off on a wrong trail. It doesn't matter. The fact is that God made clear through a voice his will for Joseph. And Joseph understood that he had heard the voice of God. Principle number one for seekers. Principle number one for seekers. When seeking clarity about the will of God, you cannot ignore the voices of God. Let me say that again. Principle number one, when seeking clarity about the will of God, you cannot ignore the voices of God. Joseph did not ignore the voice of this angel, which was a representative of God. Notice he said, don't fear. Go ahead and take your wife. She'll bear a son. And then look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, look at the next two. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he did exactly what the angel said. He named him Jesus for he shall save his people from his sin. God used an angel to speak to Joseph, and Joseph heard the voice of God, and he reacted. You know, every time I talk to an honest seeker, they often get to this point. They want to know with clarity God's will for their lives, their life. They're honest. They're, Pastor Van, I just, I don't know God's will for my life. And I, you know, Joseph models for us someone whose life went from order to disorder back to order because he listened to the voices of God in his life. Do you know that you have the voices of God in your life? Clearly, we have the written word of God. We'll talk more about that in principle number two for seekers. But I'm talking about the voices of truth that God brings into our lives It is often interesting to me for people who appear to be honest seekers and they have clearly and blatantly denied the voices that God has put in their lives. And then they wonder why they don't know the will of God for their life or why their life is not going well. Young people need to listen to this. Take the familiar verse of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. There is a voice of God. Your parents, godly parents, speak as the voice of God. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that they are God or that that what they say is like should be written down in the Bible, but that God has a plan for parents to teach children truth. And that is a voice of God in your life. Your Sunday school teacher is a voice of God in your life. Your pastor, that's a scary thought, is a voice of God in your life as the scripture is unfolded. A wise and godly friend who comes alongside you and speaks truth into your life. 
because they observe that maybe you're not doing so well is a voice of God in your life. Listen, if you are a true seeker, I almost am assured that you are asking questions about the will of God. You will never know the will of God for your life if you deny the voices of God in your life. Joseph received a word from the angel. It was clear that it resonated with truth to him. We don't know how he knew. At some level, it must have just been the peace that passes. What's the next phrase in King James? All understanding. If it passes all understanding, can you really explain it? No, otherwise it would be that fits my understanding. The peace of God, which is well within the realm of my understanding. That's not what the passage says. But how often do we argue with the voices of God in our lives? And then we live in misery. And then we make bad decisions. And oh, I want to be closer to God. I want to grow my faith. I really want to believe in Jesus like my grandma did. But you have denied the voices of God in your life and you have gone contrary to their decisions and their counsel. How much louder can God speak? Well, he can speak pretty loudly. That's principle number one for seekers. As Joseph, in his confused state, moves to a state of conviction. And principle number one for seekers is, when seeking clarity about the will of God, you cannot ignore the voices of God. He did, as the angel commanded, a voice from God. God speaks a little bit clearer. We learn that lesson in our second set of characters as our eyes fall down to chapter 2 in Matthew chapter 2. And this is the story of the wise men. Now, I recognize that the wise men were not at the manger. It was clearly pointed out to me this morning as someone came into church that we have a little issue out here with our manger scene on the sidewalk and that there's three wise men there. They said, Pastor Van, why are there three wise men there? And I said, because we three kings of Orion are uh, smoking on a rubber cigar or something. I don't know. (laughs) Didn't you sing that when you were a kid? I probably shouldn't have said that. This service is being recorded. Now your kids are going to sing it. So let's just say, once and for all, we know that the wise men were not at the manger and that Jesus was probably close to two years old. Um, when the wise men found their way there. And the story transitions rapidly in Matthew's Gospel. How about let's just say that um, instead of taking down the wise men out there, um, we're going to just consider it a, a literary technique to lump all the characters together at one place in time to tell the story. I just made that up. That sounded really good. Because <laughs> I will lose the argument that the wise men were at the... Ma- I'm, I'm sure they weren't. So this is all a literary technique, but you can get in trouble changing the story, can't you? Are we clear? We move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and we're just going to go there because we don't want to go to Luke and then come back to Matthew. We learn from Joseph, principle number one for seekers, and it answers questions about the will of God. The wise men, we'll put them in the category of the curious. How's that? If Joseph was in the category of the confused, the wise men are in the category of the curious. And they help us answer questions about the person of Christ. Every honest seeker that I have ever spoken with in my office or in passing or along the trail ends up 
talking about who is Jesus and how do I exactly find him. Again, I'm not talking about those who are antagonistic, those who do not want to really find Jesus. They just want to talk about how you can't find Jesus. And they want to prove that you can't. And we see evidences of those kind of people around us a lot. I'm talking about honest seekers. I'm talking about having to get to a place in seeking a greater, deeper faith and understanding of the Word of God that you've got to figure out who Jesus is. And the wise men demonstrate for us characters in the Christmas story of those seeking to find Jesus. And they had one goal in mind. Their goal was to worship when you read the story. And that's the whole point of the story. And that, for example, is a case of why we don't have more details about the wise men. For example, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out where in the world do these guys come from? It says in the text, from the east. Oh, you want more information? We don't know. There's two common theories. One is that they were from the former area of Babylonia. They were Chaldeans. One of the arguments for that, that how they got their information and and why they would be understanding who Jesus was and come prepared to worship him as the king of the Jews and how they understood him in the context of human history. And they even seemed to grasp at some level the redemptive plan of God in Christ. And they brought these symbolic gifts that speak to the very personage of Christ and who he is and what his redemptive role would be. Incense and frankincense and myrrh. Giving to a baby the very perfumes that would be put on a corpse, for example, and the picture of that. One of the reasons people think they came from the area of the Chaldeans, that would be present-day Iraq, the Babylonian Empire. Saddam Hussein country, ISIL country, now. And they came because that's where Daniel lived. When Daniel was taken up into the captivity and, the, and part of the dispersion and the young Hebrew men and women were captured and taken. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, that was their, their new Babylonian pagan names. And Daniel... Belteshazzar, all these guys and the kings up there, and he served under a number of kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. When you read Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see the king calling his wise men to come serve in his court to help him figure out and solve problems. And they really were really, really smart. They were the wizards of smart. They were guys who had it together. They studied the stars. They understood mathematics. They understood geography. They understood the sciences. They understood multiple languages. They probably were embedded in some level of the occult and and Babylonian false religions where they worshiped the planets and the stars. But Daniel had influence. Daniel was in a leadership capacity. He no doubt discipled these guys who taught their children and their grandchildren. And there was some kind of line of truth that was passed on. And they studied the scriptures. They would have had Isaiah and Jeremiah. They would have maybe had copies of Moses. They would have been reading this stuff. And they would have passed it on for some generations here. So it is possible that under Daniel's influence, way back in the book of Daniel, that these guys are studying and it all comes together. And then it brings, or they were... Persian and they came from Iran. There's a lot of argument that they were Persian and came from Iran. How they had this information, we're not sure, but they studied and they knew. 
They had written material and they sat around and they talked about it. And they and they, uh, you know, they wanted to dialogue about this stuff and they had a sense of of what was going on here. And it brings up the whole story about the star. So they come to Bethlehem, chapter two of Matthew, in the days of Herod, the king, these wise men from the east. So that's really all we know about them. That's enough. Don't stress out about it. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. That's another thing that everybody strains about. And it's kind of fun to speculate about. And, and in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, for example, it talks about there will be a rising star out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. And it's probably metaphoric for Jesus himself will come up. It's probably not a literal star that it's talking about there. But there's this idea. So what kind of... What kind of planet or what kind of light or what kind, what kind of deal was this? I don't know. It's fun to look at the movies and the talk and it's interesting and you can learn from it. The bottom line is someday God will explain it to us. But they, they were able to know somehow by the alignment of stars and looking at the sky and there was something odd and there was something that caught their eye and they moved towards it. They evidently lost track of it because when they got there, they couldn't find exactly where they wanted to locate. Whether they were somehow, you know, triangulating through the stars and using their, um, uh, what do you call that thing that sailors use, you know, and, uh, and a sexton or, a, you know, and, and their compass. And they were trying to figure it all out. And they come to Herod and they say, where is he? They are seekers of Jesus. Where is he? Every honest seeker asks that question, don't they? Where is he? Where's Jesus? I want to find Jesus. I want you to notice where they get their specific information about Jesus. And so Herod picks up on this, verse 3. It bothers him. There's a ripple effect across all of Jerusalem that bothers them. And he assembles his chief priests and his scribes. These would be Old Testament scholars. And he inquired of them, where was this Christ to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophets, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It was a prophetic statement about where Jesus would be born, right in Bethlehem, the town of bread. And there the bread of life would come. Principle number two for seekers, the curious. Principle number two. When seeking clarity about the Son of God, you cannot ignore the Word of God. When seeking clarity about the Son of God, you cannot ignore the Word of God. Here's what I'm talking about. Seekers find their way to my office. And inevitably, they will ask me to read an article out of a magazine or listen to a sermon on the DVD, uh, on the internet. And or they will have a book, a philosopher that they're reading, or some theologian from Europe that they're reading. Or they will have a huge, thick book, you know, and, and they're reading. And sometimes it's good stuff. It's Ravi Zachariah, or it might be The Case for Christ, you know, by uh, whoever. And, and it's all good stuff. And I'll ask them, are you studying the scriptures, seeking to find out who Jesus is? Oh, I know the Bible. 
That means, no, I don't read the Bible, but I think I know a lot about the Bible because I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. And the fact of the matter is, if they took a Bible IQ test, they would fail it terribly. And they really don't know a lot about the Bible and they really aren't reading the scripture. I want to illustrate what I mean about this. You see, if you're an honest seeker and you really want to find Jesus, see, the wise men wanted to find Jesus. And so they were studies, they were students of the Old Testament. But this is illustrated in the life of Christ. None other than Jesus himself clarified that if you want to know how to find me, you have to study the scriptures. Now, I am not minimizing uh, guys like Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ. I'm not minimizing Ravi Zacharias. I'm not minimizing Francis Schaeffer. I would minimize uh, you know, some of the philosophers. If I say their names, I'll mispronounce them. But different guys that people love to read. And I have encountered many seekers like this through the years. Pastor Van, I grew up in this little Baptist church and I'm seeking Christ. But I've been reading this guy now. I don't know what's true. And I say, well, are you reading your Bible? Well, I know the Bible. No, you don't know the Bible. You need to immerse yourself in Scripture. Let's go to Luke's Gospel, and let me show you two places in Luke's Gospel exactly what I'm talking about. It's Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and this is a rather familiar story. And in fact, I find that I reference this story in a number of ways from the pulpit here. I find it a most fascinating story. It's known as the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, and this is the story that Jesus told where he said names about people in the story. So a lot of people think that it wasn't a parable because he named Lazarus by name and he gave these intimate details about what was happening. It's likely that it is a snapshot of real people who really lived and then they died. You know, the story starts in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, where it says, And the rich man who was clothed in fine purple and linen, he ate sumptuously every day. And then the poor man, Lazarus, he's the one who ate at, uh, sat and hunkered underneath Lazarus, uh, the rich man's table, looking for crumbs like a dog. And he had nothing. But then they both die in the story. They both die. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? I mean, you can be some guy who lives on the street and at the rescue mission, and you can be Donald Trump. And when you die, guess what? You're equal. They make caskets that fit everybody just beautifully. It is not a problem. And this whole story is about living your life in such a way that you are prepared for the next life. That's a lot what the story of the Bible is. That you have this life to prepare for eternity. And so the poor man dies and he goes to a place in the story called Abraham's bosom. It's a a metaphoric for heaven. This is where it gets a little bit technical. Don't be, let me confuse you, but do you know when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also, and I will come again and receive you unto myself. That when you die right now, you don't go to the eternal state of heaven, heaven. That the new Jerusalem who's going to come out of the sky and the rebuild of this globe in the book of Revelation, all that hasn't taken place yet. And so when loved ones die, it is clear in our New Testament that when you die, you enter the presence of the Lord. So where the Lord is, that's where you are. And we call that heaven. In this case, it's called Abraham's bosom, a place of peace, a place of comfort, a place of reward. The rich man goes to a place called Hades or hell. In the same way, if you die today without Christ, 
You are bound for hell. You can't get out of there. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as lighting enough candles or saying enough prayers to get you out of there. But if you read Revelation chapter 11, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20, it can't be any clearer that this Hades or hell is a temporary holding place and that death and Hades and and the grave and Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, that's everybody who doesn't accept the message of Jesus Christ, will be cast into the eternal lake of fire forever. So in this story, in Luke's gospel in chapter 16, you've got this picture of people who die, and it gives us an insight into what happens when one minute after somebody dies, if you know the Lord, you go into a place of peace and into the presence of the Lord. Here it's called Abraham's bosom. Or if you don't know the Lord, you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you have only you have not dealt with your sinfulness at the cross, you go to a place of utter darkness, of wailing, of gnashing of teeth, and a place of torment. So much so that if you look at verse 24 in our story of Luke 6, it says that the rich man who despised Lazarus, Lazarus when he was on earth, calls out to Father Abraham in verse 24 and he says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. You remember Lazarus, that, that pussy, dirty, lysy guy that used to live in the steps of my house and under my tables Take his dirty fingernail finger and put it in water and let him, please, just put it on my lips once. It was such a place of torment. And Abraham answers him and says, Child, verse 25, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad. Now he's comforted here, but you are in anguish. And besides this, here's the permanency of this. Between us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to cross. You can't get out of there. It's a permanent fixture. So then the rich man pleads his second part of his case. And he says, but I have five brothers who are still alive and they haven't entered eternity yet. Would you please send someone from the grave to go warn them? Evidently, people who are in hell today wish somebody could go tell their family the truth about eternity. How much better to just take the word and believe it. Abraham answers in a most curious way. Look what he says. But Abraham said, verse 29, They, his five brothers, have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, verse 30, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear, once again, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And how many friends of yours reject Christ today and he rose from the dead and told the truth? And they still don't believe it. I want you to see here that like the wise men the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or the Persians and whatever they were, the wise men who came seeking King Jesus are a model for us about the, uh, about the uh, uh, seeking for us uh, um, questions about the person of Christ. 
and that they found their answers in the Old Testament and Moses. And likewise, in our New Testament, in Luke 16, we have completely clearly illustrated for us that when Abraham looks at the rich man and he wants to know the truth about Jesus and repentance and eternal life, he says, go read Moses and the prophets. There's another interesting story, and we don't have a lot of time, but turn to Luke chapter 24, and let me remind you of the two men on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? It was the day of the resurrection of Christ. This is Luke chapter 24. We'll only take a second here. Let's just read it because it'll speed it up. It's verse 13 in Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What a, what a remarkable moment. Two guys hanging around Jerusalem all day on the day of the resurrection. The city is abuzz. All the social media is lit up on fire. Everybody's talking about what's going on. Can you believe it? A couple days ago, it turned dark. The earthquake, the dead rose. And Jesus, they crucified Jesus. We don't know what's going on. Now today, the word is spreading through the city that he's alive. He's resurrected. What's going on? And these guys were disciples. They knew a lot. They had understood the message of Christ. But now Jesus is walking down the road next to them and he spiritually held them from understanding, recognizing who he was. And look what he does. And he said to them, verse 17, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. They actually stopped walking. And they kind of like did like my older brother used to do to me. You don't know? My brother loved it when he had information I didn't have. And I would say like, who's John Wayne? You don't know who John Wayne is? And then he would say, if you're so stupid that you don't know who John Wayne is, I'm not telling you. (laughs) It's just like mind-boggling. You don't know. That's the kind of the idea. These guys stop walking. You don't know what we're talking about? But they didn't tell him he's stupid, and so they wouldn't tell him. Then (laughs) verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? And where have you been? Are you asleep? Just wake up out of a coma? And so they go through and give Jesus the account of everything that happened. And it says in verse 21, but we had really hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And then the tomb was empty and the women came and told us. And in verse 25, Jesus pops it on them. Look what it says. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that who has spoken? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning, look what it says. And beginning with Francis Schaeffer, and beginning with Ravi Zacharias, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he unfolded who Jesus was and the redemptive plan. It can't get any clearer than that. And if you're an honest seeker, you are coming to a place where you want to know who Jesus is. I am not against reading good books and listening to good messages, but I ask you, are you pouring yourself into Moses and the prophets? And building on the prophecy and building on the teaching and instruction of the Old Testament that comes to true light in the New Testament so that you will understand who Jesus is. I dare say that you really cannot come, you cannot find Jesus any other way.
Principle number two for seekers. When seeking clarity about the Son of God, you cannot ignore the Word of God. How many times people who say they want to follow Christ are ignorant of the Word of God or they don't care about the Word of God? Well, we must uh, quickly wrap up the other two characters, and let me just kind of summarize those. Let's go to Luke. And there we find the key character, really, in the story. Joseph is a key character, but in Luke, we have Mary's account. And Mary illustrates for us and helps us answer questions about the circumstances of my life. True seekers often question how God is going to work out the details of his will in their lives. They're trying to believe. I want to believe. I want to be like my grandfather, my grandmother. I I want to believe like my dad or my pastor. But you don't understand my life. My life is really complicated now. You see, a lot of young people coming up in Christian homes ignore the Word of God, and so they make decisions outside of the voices of God and the wisdom. And now they're in situations that they have no clue how they're going to get out of it. And they're seeking Jesus, and they want to find Jesus. Um, Notice that Mary... She represents a committed person because she, with a very little bit of revelation, she immediately locks in and believes it to be true. She's so strong in her faith. You know the story well, and we've just read it. This is, I might have said Luke chapter 2. I'm in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1. And this is where the angel comes to her, tells her not to be afraid. You found favor and behold, you will conceive in your womb, verse 31, and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great. And he will rule over the house of Jacob, his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary says to the angel, verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Okay, remember, we've emphasized this already this Christmas season, that this, this was not a limitation of her belief in the reality of what was going to happen. It was a lack of understanding in the physical outworking of it. How is this going to unfold? I believe it's going to happen, but could you tell me how, since I don't know a man, that I'm going to get pregnant? It's a great question. And really, in this passage, it's loaded with two kinds of questions, and almost every seeker has these kinds of questions. First of all, number one, they have theological questions. I am sure that Mary had theological questions. What are the ramifications of the Son of God, the Holy One, being born in me, a sinner? Mary knew that she was a sinner. She was not immaculate. She, she needed a Redeemer just like everyone else. And no one knew that better than she. So she had theological questions. I don't know how this is going to work out. And she had pre- practical questions. How is this going to happen since I haven't known a man? How does a pregnancy take place? And there's practical questions If God's will is going to unfold in my life, what about these present circumstances? I don't know a man, and yet I'm going to be pregnant. Mary believed these things to be true, but she couldn't explain them. She couldn't explain all the theology, and she couldn't explain all the practical ramifications. And that leads us to principle number three for seekers. When seeking clarity about the, quote, mysteries of God, you cannot ignore the power of God. When seeking clarity about the mysteries of God in your life, you cannot ignore the power of God. Listen, Mary had faith and she believed and she was committed. She knew it was true and she never wavered. And that's what got her to verse 37. When the 
angel explains to her in 35 and 36 of Luke 1, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Well, I don't understand that either. He's going to overshadow you. I don't understand that. The child will be born, will be called holy, the Son of God. Well, I don't really understand that. And even your relative Elizabeth is in her old barren age and barrenness is going to conceive. She's in her sixth month. I don't really understand the practical practicalities of that. And verse 37 is what answers it all, for nothing is impossible with God. There it is. You see, if you can explain it, it's not faith. And if you are a true seeker, you've got to come to a place where you have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to God except through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't get there through natural explanation. You can't get there through science. We emphasized this a good bit in our skeptics message two weeks ago. And you say, Pastor Van, you don't know the circumstances of my life. You're right, I don't. They say, I want to live for God. I want to find Christ. But now I have all this debt in my life. Or now I'm married to this slug and I don't know what to do about it. And I, now I've got, I've got this job that I can't stand, but I can't quit. And, I, and now I've got all these things and all this stuff is getting in my way and I don't know what to do. And Listen, here's the answer. I can't, I can't untangle your mixed up mess. But Luke one thirty seven says, but nothing is impossible for God. And Romans 8.28 says, and all things work together for good to them that love God. So you can, in the middle of your life circumstances, you can latch on by faith to the mysteries of God, how He's going to do it, how He's going to untangle your life. You can do it by grasping the power of God. Principle number three for seekers, when seeking clarity about the mysteries of God, how are you going to unfold this in my... I want to know answers, Pastor Van. I don't have answers. I just know God can do it. You cannot ignore the power of God and get where God wants you to go. There are supernatural realities here. Uh, The final part of our story, and just very quickly turn the page to Luke 2, is where we get to these guys, the shepherds. They're great guys. They help us answer questions about God's plan of salvation. They're convinced. They're in the category of the convinced. Uh, It begins with verse 8. You know the story well. We've already read it this morning. The angel of the Lord appears to them. They're frightened. But then the angel tells them to relax. He brings them good news of great joy, verse 10 of chapter 2, that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. And what happens when the angels leave after they rejoice and sing Gloria, the, the shepherds look at each other and say, Yahoo, let's go to town and figure this thing out. And they run down to town. They find everything exactly the way and they believe. And you can tell they believe because they run all over the community telling everybody what they saw and they worship themselves they worship Jesus themselves and they rejoice and you can tell that they have just they're just totally all in and so a seeker comes along and they are seeing these crusty old shepherds holding up their robes running around in their hairy leg uh, sandals yelling about this baby that's been born and that Messiah has come and the 400 silent years are over and God has spoken again and this is the Savior of the world. He's the one who's going to save us from our sin and you say to yourself, I would like to believe it like them. Look at those shepherds. Seeker seeker principle number four, I have to explain just a little bit. It is this. Principle number four for seekers is when seeking clarity about the gospel of God, you cannot ignore the people of God. 
When seeking clarity about the gospel of God, you cannot ignore the people of God. Here's what I mean. You might be at the threshold of becoming a Christ follower, and you're an honest seeker. But you're struggling with the plan of salvation. Who is really the Savior of the world? And how do I know another religion doesn't get me to heaven? And is Jesus really God in the flesh, in the incarnation? And how do I know? Here's what you do. You find some people of God who used to be in darkness, who are now in light, and you let them tell you your story. Let them tell you their story like the shepherds went around broadcasting the good news and they they said, this is what happened. We're telling you the truth. I'm thinking of my friend Alonzo Puller sitting at a traffic light out on 340 about uh, 16, 18 years ago at 2 o'clock in the morning after an evening filled with sin on his way home, sitting at a traffic light in the middle of 340 and, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God pulls the scales off his eyes and Jesus is real and his life is changed dramatically from one who is a sinner in brokenness to somebody who walks in the light. You don't get it? You don't quite understand? Then if you want to get the gospel of God, go find a person of God who used to be a person of the devil. Go talk to a shepherd who used to just hang out in the hills, but who got to see Jesus and it transformed their life. Go find my friend Rodney Malad, who was raised in a Christian home, who finds himself in his mature adulthood in his early 40s, lying on the bathroom floor in a drug overdose with his heart stopping, almost dying and realizing I better get right with God. And you sit down and you just ask him, what was it like before you lived for Christ? And what's it like after you lived for Christ? And tell me, how did you find Christ? And you tell me by talking to the people of God, if you don't find some help and clarity on the gospel of God and that it makes sense. You talk to those shepherds, you're going to learn a lot about the gospel of God. And there's a Savior. And he came to... He came to save the world. And we saw him, and we couldn't stay on our feet. We fell to our knees. And then we couldn't keep our mouths shut because he transformed our lives. That night was profound. I am not suggesting that a person's testimony is of equal value to the power of the gospel to change your life. But I'm saying that if you are a true seeker, and you really want clarity about the gospel of God and what it means to be saved, you need to find the people of God who have been transformed, who are new creations in Christ, who the gospel has done its work in, and whom the gospel is continuing to do its work. And I'm telling you, you will find that very valuable in finding answers. Hanging around your friends who don't know God, they're not going to bring clarity to your mind. They don't know. They have more questions than you do. They have more crazy ideas. That, and you ask them, where did you get that? Because your friends will do that. You know that. They'll say, well, I believe. And you listen to them spout off what they believe. And then ask, where did you get that? And they'll have to say, well, I made it up. <laughs> or they'll say, I just pick and choose from all the religions what I believe. First of all, no, they haven't. They haven't read. Almost none of your friends have read all, the, all these other religions. They just know like five minutes worth and they say, well, I like this. And it's just a, it just sounds good to their ears. It's utter nonsense. Stop talking to those people and talk to some people of God who've been to the manger, who've been to the baby Jesus, who was God in the flesh, who grew up and went to the cross and substituted himself in. For our redemption, our Redeemer. 
See if it doesn't bring clarity. Well, there, I hope that helps a little bit as we break down the story. We looked at Joseph. He starts out confused. He ends up full of conviction. And he helps us answer questions about the will of God. And principle number one for seekers was when seeking clarity about the will of God, you must not ignore the voices of God. We move to the wise men, those curious guys, seeking Jesus They help us answer questions about the person of Christ that every true, honest seeker will have to ask. And their principle number two we found for seekers was that when seeking clarity about the Son of God, you cannot ignore the Word of God. We went to Mary in Luke 2, and she had circumstances in her life. She was very committed, though, and principle number three for seekers there was when seeking clarity about the mysteries of God, The things I can't explain in my life, you cannot ignore the power of God. By faith, God can do all these things and work it out. Finally, these shepherds, they help us answer as seekers questions about God's plan of salvation because they were utterly convinced that this was the Christ. And that's seeker principle number four. When seeking clarity about the gospel of God, you cannot ignore the people of God. Look at the life change that went on in these shepherds. They were there. They saw it. So if you're truly seeking Jesus, you need to ask the right questions and you need to look at the right people. Most of all, you need to study Moses and the prophets. You got to get in the word. And stop fooling yourself that you're a seeker, but you're not reading the Bible. And you're not listening to the voices of God. You're just convoluting and crushing in on your life. More confusion. Clear the table. Open the book. Focus on the people of God and listen to the Word of God. And Christmas time's a great time to do that, even though it's stinking busy. And you got all these expectations and demands from, from cookies to chocolate covered pretzels to lights that won't stay up to office parties and gifts and forgetting Aunt Matilda's gift. And some seekers here need to just. Really narrow it down the funnel and start paying attention. Study the word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we need your help for clarity. When we ask, what child is this? Your word gives us the answer. And we recognize that we can only come to you by faith. Not by reason, not by logic. Not that it's illogical to follow Jesus. But that these spiritual realities are such that we can't explain them completely. And those who come to you must come in faith, believing that you are who you say you are. And that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Father, as we continue to reflect upon the story of Christmas and as we celebrate with our families this week, would you please help the seekers out there, the honest seekers, to come to some great conclusions. Biblical conclusions, spiritual conclusions, life-freeing conclusions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.